Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Smart Pharmacist podcast series by ISMP Canada. Our bi-monthly series looks into medication safety topics for community pharmacy practice and how to incorporate safe medication practices at your site. My name is Jim, and today I have our guest, Chelsea, joining us. Hello, Jim, and hello to all our listeners. Welcome, Chelsea. So please tell us a little bit about yourself and the topic we'll be discussing today. Sure, Jim. So I'm a recent PharmD graduate, currently working as a pharmacist in a busy community pharmacy. I find today's topic really interesting as it focuses on drug-drug interactions in the geriatric population. In community pharmacy, we're the last line of defense before the drug reaches the patient, which is why screening for these drug-drug interactions is so vital. We know as we age, our physiology changes, which can make us more susceptible to certain interactions between medications. In addition, elderly patients are a vulnerable population and often have complex medication regimens. We've all heard about issues with polypharmacy. Today, we'll discuss some important drug interactions to keep an eye out for in community pharmacy, particularly in geriatric patients, in order to prevent adverse drug reactions. So let's start with the last part you mentioned, adverse drug reactions. Um, Can you explain how interactions between medications are more likely to cause adverse drug reactions in the elderly population compared to the general population? Well, the cause of drug interactions can either be pharmacokinetic, with one drug affecting the absorption, distribution, metabolism, or excretion of the other, or pharmacodynamic, where the response of one drug is affected by the other without any pharmacokinetic changes. Either of these changes can increase the toxicity or decrease the efficacy of a medication. As we age, our physiology changes, which can increase our susceptibility to medication interactions. In the elderly, body composition increases in fat mass and decreases in total body water. This means the volume of distribution of lipophilic or lipid-loving drugs can increase, leading to increased drug accumulation over time. This can happen with drugs like fentanyl, amiodarone, and digoxin. Kidney function also declines yearly past the age of 50, and blood flow to the liver is reduced. These changes can result in decreased clearance of medications and increased accumulation of drugs in the body. A large contributing factor for the increase in potential for drug-drug interactions is the complexity of medication regimens, as aging patients often take several medications concurrently for multiple conditions. The good thing is that interactions between drugs are often predictable, so we can use this knowledge to proactively prevent adverse drug events from occurring. From my experience working in long-term care, declining kidney function along with a huge list of complex medication regimens can really put elderly patients at risk for drug-drug interactions. Uh, Not to mention the fact that as you age, there's a natural cognitive decline and patients may not always be aware of new medications introduced or uh, taken out of their therapy. Yes, exactly. Actually, I'd like to bring up an incident published by ISMP Canada related to medication use in the elderly. This incident unfortunately resulted in a patient death and could have been prevented. An elderly woman was presented to hospital with a mild fever and three to four day history of feeling unwell. Her medications included citalopram 40 milligrams daily, an antihypertensive, an anticoagulant, and non-prescription supplements. She was treated with ampicillin and gentamicin for pneumonia. But upon worsening, the antibiotic regimen was switched a couple days later to azithromycin and ceftriaxone. Her clinical status deteriorated temporarily, thought to be a TIA. The ECG showed atrial fibrillation and a prolonged QT interval. Although a note in her health record questioned the possibility of a drug effect, no medication regimen changes were made. In the following days, she experienced a series of syncopal episodes, ultimately followed by cardiac arrest. 
At that time, her QT interval was markedly prolonged and lab values showed low potassium, a known risk factor for dangerous heart arrhythmias. Azithromycin and citalopram were then discontinued. The patient passed away the next day. The QT prolongation due to the interaction between azithromycin and citalopram was deemed to have contributed to her death. I actually remember reading about this case, and I think it was a collaborative project between ISMP Canada and uh, four provincial offices of the chief coroner or chief medical examiner. Um, Chelsea, can you lead us through some of the findings from reviewing this case? Well, for this case, the patient had both non-modifiable and modifiable risk factors uh, for QT prolongation. The non-modifiable risk factors included female sex, age, and pre-existing cardiovascular disease. However, it's actually the modifiable risk factors that we want to focus on since these were the preventable factors that could have been addressed to prevent this incident. These included the high citalopram dose for the patient's age, the use of two QT prolonging medications, and hypokalemia. Addressing these modifiable risk factors may have reduced the risk for QT prolongation from both drugs and potentially the outcome of this case. The analysis of this case afterwards resulted in some key recommendations. These included ensuring pharmacy information systems have up-to-date programming uh, to detect dangerous drug-drug interactions, having a standardized way to notify prescribers of potentially dangerous drug interactions, determining the lag time for new and important drug interactions to be integrated into software system updates, and reviewing the severity levels for drug interaction alerts in pharmacy software systems to manage alert fatigue. The important point from these recommendations is that although computerized systems for drug interaction detection are invaluable in pharmacy practice, these are far from perfect. Yeah, I think these are all good points. And, you know, like you're saying, in day-to-day practice, you can still make mistakes even after implementing all these recommendations, especially in a more complex patient group like the elderly population. Since you have a background as a community pharmacist, Chelsea, what do you think are some of the main challenges when dealing with drug-drug interactions in community practice? Um, well, Jim, I think the biggest challenge is that detection of drug-drug interactions by clinicians is, is not optimal, and it is unrealistic to remember all interactions. Drug alerts are helpful, but non-relevant or trivial warnings can lead to that alert fatigue, as I mentioned. These systems are also not always up to date, and unfortunately, they may fail to detect one in three drug-drug interactions. Personally, I always scan the whole current medication profile of a patient uh, and do my own sort of interaction check in my head as I cannot confidently rely solely on the computer system alerts. And every time I'm verifying a prescription, I'm making note of the patient's age, mentally thinking about what other factors might be important in that age group. Finally, I think one of the tougher challenges is determining whether an interaction is clinically significant and warrants an actual discussion with the prescriber. I agree. I think sometimes the term clinically significant is thrown around a bit too much, um, but it's often because as pharmacy professionals, especially in community practice, there's not as much access to information about patient-specific risk factors. So I think we tend to err on the side of caution. Uh, One of the other challenges we have is gathering high-quality evidence of drug interactions rather than case reports. Um, So let's talk a bit about some examples of clinically significant uh, drug-drug interaction pairs that we can actively screen for in community pharmacies. 
Richard Jim, actually, a lot of drug interactions from pharmacoepidemiologic studies involve antibiotics, and these types of drug interactions uh, can often be resolved by just switching to a different antibiotic class. So it's the perfect opportunity for a pharmacist intervention. So in this episode, I want to talk about two common types of antibiotics that pharmacy professionals often encounter, um, which would be SEPTRA and then the class of macrolide antibiotics, azithromycin, clarithromycin, and erythromycin. Uh, within, when these antibiotics interact with other medications that are commonly taken by elderly patients, the outcome can potentially result in hospitalization. Uh, let's start with septra uh, or trimethoprim slash sulfamethazole. What sort of drug interactions are we looking for here? So trimethoprim or uh, with the sulfamethoxazole can interact with um, first antihypertensives, so ACE inhibitors, um, ARBs, or spironolactone. Um, can also interact with warfarin, uh, glyburide, and phenytoin. So there's kind of four main ones there. So in any geriatric patient prescribed SEPTRA in community pharmacy, screening their profile for these four types of medications uh, is important. Can you take us through each one and just describe what can happen if you take SEPTRA with the medications that you mentioned? Okay, let's start with the ACE inhibitors or ARBs or spironolactone, so any of the antihypertensives uh, that I've mentioned. The concern here is hyperkalemia. It has been found uh, that within seven days of being on both SEPTRA and one of these drugs, um, or the ACE inhibitor or ARB, a patient, um, patients have had a seven-fold increased risk of hospitalization due to high potassium levels. Uh, and then for spironolactone and SEPTRA, uh, within 14 days of being on both of those, patients had a 12-fold increased risk of hyperkalemia. So the mechanism behind this is that trimethoprim has pharmacological similarities to amylaride, which is a potassium-sparing diuretic, and its use can then decrease the potassium excretion by about 40%. So adding trimethoprim to other medications uh, that are known to increase potassium levels, like the ACE inhibitors or ARBs, can then result in hyperkalemia. What about uh, between warfarin and septra? So this one's interesting because we know that many antibiotics disrupt our gut flora and vitamin K synthesis occurs in our intestine. So if vitamin K synthesis is decreased due to antibiotics, the effect of warfarin is actually increased since it's a vitamin K antagonist. So as well, uh, septra inhibits the CYP2C9 enzyme that metabolizes warfarin. So Putting all this together, it was actually found that within 14 days of being on both warfarin and septra, the risk of hospitalization in elderly patients uh, due to hemorrhagic complications related to upper GI bleeding was increased uh, four times. Okay, so we have spironolactone, ACE inhibitors, ARBs, and warfarin. What about the last two medications that you mentioned, glyburide and uh, phenytoin? So SEPTRA itself can sometimes cause hypoglycemia as a side effect. So um, when you combine SEPTRA with glyburide, it increases the risk of hospitalization due to hypoglycemia. Um, it actually increases it about sixfold. So as for phenytoin, once again, this is because SEPTRA inhibits that CYP2C9 enzyme, which contributes substantially to phenytoin me metabolism. So when you take SEPTRA with phenytoin, the interaction can result in phenytoin toxicity uh, with a two times increased risk of hospitalization. Okay, so um, thank you for taking us through the interactions with SEPTRA. Um, can we talk a little bit 
Now about the macrolides and what kind of drug interactions can occur with this class of antibiotics? Yeah, so there are two main ones with the macrolides. Uh, the main drugs to screen for here are digoxin, uh, with any of the three macrolides, can result in hospitalization from uh, digoxin toxicity. And then the non-DHP calcium channel blockers, such as diltiazem and verapamil, um, these ones uh, with, with the macrolides can result in hospitalization from hypotension. So digoxin has a high affinity for the PGP efflux transporter, uh, which macrolides actually inhibit. So this can lead to increased digoxin levels and um, resulting toxicity. For the non-DHP calcium channel blockers, only clarithromycin and erythromycin are of concern as they inhibit the CYP3A4 uh, enzyme that metabolizes these calcium channel blockers. So in this case, choosing azithromycin um, for a better option. Okay, so you've given us a lot of information about the drug-drug interactions, and based on my experience, these interacting drug pairs are actually pretty commonly used in the elderly population. Um, chronic medications like blood pressure medications or warfarin, they're probably used by the majority of elderly patients in Canada. In each of these cases or in each of these interaction drug pairs, would you be contacting the prescriber? It really is patient-specific, uh, but in a lot of these cases, I actually, I would. So I've seen some of these combinations in practice, um, septra and ACE inhibitors, azithromycin and digoxin, um, and have personally contacted prescribers who've often, mo most of the time, been happy to discuss these situations. Um, it is a team effort, after all, and I do believe in the importance of being vigilant in community pharmacy, uh, especially since patients often see multiple prescribers. So now... Um, Although these drug pairs carry a risk of hospitalization for elderly populations, um, it is important to note that it's still ultimately left up to the professional judgment of the pharmacist uh, to dispense or not. So sometimes, depending on the situation, the severity of the illness of the patient and other patient risk factors, um, you can still give out septor or macrolide uh, with one of these medications, as sometimes it may benefit the patient more than switching to a different antibiotic. For example, if they need to start therapy right away and they can't wait for prescriber authorization. Um, these especially, um, this example especially applies to elderly populations since their state of health is generally not as stable as when they were younger, and sometimes there's a sense of urgency when antibiotics are prescribed. Although clinically it may be safer for the patient to take a different antibiotic, there are also these external logistics that should be considered. Yeah, I agree. As a pharmacist, I think you have to take everything into consideration and also consider the potential risks if a patient doesn't take a prescribed medication. So from what we've discussed today, is there anything else you wouldn't like to add? Um, well, the geriatric population, uh, we know, is one of the most complex patient groups to care for. I think the main message from this episode is to maximize the tools we have available to us, uh, pay attention to pharmacy software alerts, but also be cognizant of the limitations of these programs, and continually screen for high alert medication interactions in the elderly. There are some great resources on the ISMP Canada website, such as safety bulletins, including the one case we were discussing today, uh, some templates for prescriber notifications of drug-drug interactions, and some summary charts of the interactions we discussed today as well. Staying up to date with your own reading, um, especially Health Canada advisories, etc., is also key due to the lag time with program software updates. 
Um, as well, I find it really helpful to discuss interactions with other practitioners uh, and determining you know, what's a clinically relevant issue, um, which can help build your own knowledge base. In these ways, we can be proactive in preventing adverse drug reactions due to medication interactions in the elderly. Okay, those are some great recommendations. Uh, that about wraps up this episode. Uh, thank you, Chelsea, for being here today to talk about preventable drug-drug interactions in geriatric patients. Uh, thanks for having me, Jim. It was great to be here. Thank you for listening to the last episode in our first season of the Smart Pharmacist podcast series. For more information regarding any of the analysis or safety recommendations mentioned in our episodes, please visit www.ismp-canada.org to access our safety bulletins. Thank you.